Well, let's uh, get started here. And uh, see if some latecomers come in here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your blessings to us, for the opportunity to be at CBC and to uh, fellowship with one another around the Word of God and to study uh, some of this material related to how we got our Bible. We're just thankful that the Bible has been given to us uh, in our own language and some very good translations that are available to us today. So we're very privileged people and we're blessed to be able to know your word and therefore to know you, which is life eternal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we start off with a quiz from last time. Uh, the Greek alphabet does not contain vowels. Troy can't answer any of these questions, so don't look to him. He's not allowed. Troy says false. <laughs> he does. Well, <laughs> Troy, Troy is, is right, remember? <laughs> so what alphabet does not contain vowels? The Hebrew alphabet. Well, it's got vowel points, but the alphabet itself, they don't consider that the alphabet, but you're right. But, as I say, you look, pick up an Israeli newspaper or look at an Israeli sign, there's no vowels. They read their Hebrew in their newspapers and on their signs without vowel points. Most Old Testament manuscripts were written on parchment. That's true. That's true. Um, most of the Old Testament manuscripts are on parchment. There's a at the Dead Sea Scrolls are scrolls of parchment for the most part. There are some papyrus scrolls there, but um, they're mostly parchment scrolls and and so leather scrolls, animal skin scrolls at at. Uh, the oldest manuscripts we have are the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're mostly 95%, 98% parchment, which are animal skins, remember. Um, Sometimes the word vellum is used. You'll see people say, it's either papyrus or vellum. Sometimes parchment and vellum are used interchangeably, but vellum is sometimes distinguished as very fine parchment, like very fine, thin parchment, usually from calves or something like that, a young calf or something. Sometimes they're just used interchangeably. Three, most New Testament manuscripts were written on papyrus. I'm talking about most of the ones available to us today were written on papyrus. What's the answer to that? False, again, remember, so there's about 5,300 New Testament manuscripts, and uh, um, um, most of them, the papyri are about 140 papyri that we know of today, and that's not whole manuscripts. So most of those are fragments. So we think papyrus was the most common writing material in the New Testament age. Parchment, animal skins go back to maybe a couple thousand B.C. Parchment 
papyrus goes back to a couple thousand. But parchment is cheap. It's easier to use, but it doesn't last as long. It's fragile. So the better documents would be on parchment. And so Jews who were copying their Bibles would tend to use animal skins, parchment, you know. Early Christians, when they're writing, they're writing now. We think, we don't even know, but some people suppose that Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Colossians, he would write writing a letter, he would write on papyrus, which was easy to obtain, and so the first letter. So we assume some of the New Testament documents were written on papyrus, maybe all of them, maybe if, maybe most of them, we don't know for sure. But as far as the ones we have now, we have 140 or part, you know, versus there's several thousands of the animal skin parchment ones. Our current Hebrew text is called the Masoretic text. True. So the Hebrew text we talk about was something that was called the Masoretic text because the text uh, was stabilized by Jews after the New Testament time. Uh, we don't know the exact, we don't know all the details. People say around 100, the Hebrew text tends to become very stabilized and no variations hardly at all. And then, you know, they start adding vowel points. The earliest ones were 600, 700. By 800, you know, the Masoretes, particular name for Hebrew scribes, they standardized the vocalization system, those little points underneath. And so we have, so it's called the Masoretic text, or the MT. Um, <clears throat> number five, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran. True. So that's the location, that's the place. So in most most scholarly literature, they call them the Qumran Scrolls, the Qumran Scrolls. Same as the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's because that's the Arabic name for the location where the caves are at. We looked at last time where they found the scrolls, the Qumran scrolls. Old Testament manuscripts found the Qumran go back to 500 B.C. False. He said 250 is about the earliest. And that's even earlier than when the community was founded. The community was founded in the 2nd century. 250 B.C. would be the 3rd century B.C. So when they started the community in the 2nd century B.C., in the 160s, 150s, something, they brought manuscripts with them that were older. you know, And then they copied them. They copied manuscripts themselves. So they... We have manuscripts there that date from the 3rd century, the 2nd century, even the 1st century. Their community was destroyed by the Romans, remember I said in 68 AD, when the Romans were coming to subdue the Jews who had revolted in Jerusalem. Along the way, they just stopped by stopped by the wayside and said, let's kill these Jews off too, these Qumran Jews here. They don't have any walls, any defenses. And so they destroyed that community. We assume that's when the Jews who were there, the uh, Essenes probably, this sect, put the scrolls in the caves. And then they were found, we assume for the first time, about 1947. Seven, the NIV translation is based on the Byzantine text in the Old Testament. I don't know how much we talked about that now, but 
I don't know. I don't know if we even mentioned the term Byzantine text. I just thought maybe you might have heard that, and I was going to throw it out there to confuse you. <laughs> the Byzantine text is a term. <laughs> the Byzantine text is a term that's used in New Testament in the New Testament uh, transmission. We'll talk about that in a moment. You know, we'll get to eventually here. So you'll hear the term Byzantine text. Byzantine text. <clears throat> well, that's talking about the Greek New Testament. The Greek New Testament. So. So the NIV is not based on the Byzantine text in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Masoretic text. Every English Bible from day one <laughs> has been based on the Hebrew Masoretic text. Every English Bible that's ever been translated in English has been based on the Hebrew Masoretic text because that's the only Hebrew text there is. The New Testament has very some variation. And we say text... We mean uh, printed text mostly. Sometimes we're talking about what we call a text type. We're talking about in a moment, but but uh, we'll talk about that controversy because that's where the King James controversy comes in about which printed Greek New Testament should you be using. There's kind of a standard printed text that we use mostly, and most of the translations use NIV, ESV, ASV, RSV, every uh, New Living translation, all use it, except for the New King James Version. So we'll talk about that in a moment. All right, so we're actually looking at page 14. We're talking about the transmission of the, you know, Bible. We talked about uh, how it was transmitted down through the ages We've been talking about the Hebrew text first here, then we'll get to the New Testament text. How is the, back on page 13, how is the Old Testament transmitted throughout history? And we talked about the Masoretic text. But we want to talk about what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, I said Septuagint. There's a lot of different ways to pronounce this word. And no one seems to, there doesn't seem to be any authoritative way. Because I started out, when I first was, started out, I I pronounced it Septuagint. And then I was, as I moved along in my studies, I was informed it's really Septuagint. Septuagint. But then people pronounce it different ways. And the dictionary, you know, like the Oxford English Dictionary, will have about four different ways. Septuagint, Septuagint, a lot of different ways. So I'll just go, so one pronunciation is Septuagint. It's an easy way to say it, but you'll hear people say Septuagint. Septuagint or Septuagint, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to pronounce this word. It's an important a translation. Uh, so I say besides the manuscripts of the Hebrew text itself, they're the most important because the Bible is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. There are also manuscripts of the translation of the Old Testament into other languages. These are called versions or translations. So the word version is the same thing as translation. The New International Version, they could have named it the New International Translation. They wanted to. Version and translation are just equated, equivalent terms. So the New Living Translation could have been called the New Living Version if they wanted to. So uh, there are other, the Old Testament, 
was translated into other languages. Why was that? Because the Jews didn't stay in, you know, Israel, what we think of as Israel today. They they went to other parts of the world. They went out into Babylon, into captivity, and they picked up Aramaic, and they translated the Bible in Aramaic. And they went to all kinds of places. And so they went, they were, they were part of the uh, world of the first century, and before then, but the primary world was the Greek world. Alexander the Great in the third century BC conquered the then known world, and so that was the majority language that was spoken even in the first century. Even though Rome was in control, most people in the Roman Empire spoke Greek instead of Latin. Because Greek was the language spread by Alexander, and people picked that up as their language. And most people spoke that language rather than Latin. Hardly any Latin was spoken in Israel, in the area of Israel, or any place like that. So the most important translation of the Old Testament, this early one, is called the Septuagint. Septuagint comes uh, from, it's the word 70. It has the word 70 in it. And so it's abbreviated, you can see LXX. Remember your Roman numerals, L is 50, X is 10, X is 10. So you'll often see people write it LXX. They mean that's the abbreviation for this Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I say it means 70, translation of the 70. That's because according to a tradition, nobody knows absolutely for sure, but one tradition says... It was translated by 70 people. One, trans, one tradition says it was translated by 72 people. Uh, there's all kinds of translation, uh, you could say almost myths about this. The most common one is that the king of Egypt uh, wanted, he had a lot of Jews, and he had a great he had a great library in Alexandria. The greatest library in the world in the ancient time was the library in Alexandria. It had thousands of some people say a hundred thousand scrolls in it. And the story that's told, probably legend, but maybe some truth in it. We don't know how much truth is in it. It's hard to know. It says that uh, the king and the librarian are looking and says, "Hey, we don't have a copy." of the Jewish Bible. You know, we get all these other books from other philosophies and languages. We don't have the Jewish Bible. So they got these Jews, according to this story, to come from Jerusalem, come from Israel, down to uh, to Egypt, and they translated the Hebrew Scriptures, 72 of them. They took six from each tribe, 12 tribes, 6, 12, 72, and 72 of them, trans- they, they all went into individual little cells individual rooms <clears throat> and they translated the entire Old Testament in 72 days and when they came out and looked at them they were exactly the same there was no difference in them. Oh, that part's mythology for sure <laughs> so that's how it gets its name We don't. We do, what we do know is this it was translation I say in B1 here begun around 250 BC we know that pretty certain completed probably by by 100 B.C. This translation was needed because most of the Jews outside Palestine knew only Greek. So that's happened. They, these people 
Greek Jews moved everywhere, and they were in Egypt for a long time. You remember in captivity, and they, some of them stayed there, but they, they they traveled all places, and they grew up there. There used to be these movies, about these uh, stories, these <laughs> when I was growing up about how the Russians are going to invade America, take over America. There was all these movies and stories, and and uh, so you know, are, are we, and then they, would, they took people back to Russia. So that's what happens, you know, if you. If you and your family you know, go as missionaries somewhere to South America, your kids will be speaking Spanish. They'll speak English because you speak it. But the next generation will just be speaking Spanish, and then they'll lose their English. You know, they'll probably lose it. You know, so that's what happened to these Jews. They lost their Hebrew, and they wanted to be able to try- read their Bible, just like we want to read the Bible. Fortunately, we don't have to all learn Greek and Hebrew. We can just read the Bible in English. Much easier, and that's what these Jews needed. So, this translation allowed Jews outside of Palestine to read their Bible, their Old Testament, in Greek. So, this is a very important number two. Besides being a witness to the text of the Old Testament, so, so what we can do is we can look at the Greek Old Testament and say, okay, this is probably a translation of this Hebrew word. You know, we see a word here in Greek. Okay, the Hebrew word is probably this, and that helps us tell what the Hebrew text is. That's important. A, it was the Bible of Greek-speaking Christians from the apostolic age onward. It became the King James Version of its day. So Christianity soon became a Gentile religion. Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, establishes churches all around the Roman Empire, and he writes his letters to these people in Greek. Remember? Like 1 Corinthians 10, he starts talking to the Corinthians. He says, hey, you remember about the Israelites and they went across the Red Sea and they were under the cloud and you know what happened to them when they... He just he just tells this story like everybody knows the Old Testament. The only way these Corinthians would know the Old Testament is from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation. So they would read their Old Testament in the Greek translation. So it became the most. They became the Bible for New Testament Christians wherever they were out there in Rome, in uh, you know Ephesus, in Corinth, and Philippi, whatever. These Gentiles wouldn't know any Hebrew. They couldn't read the Old Testament in Hebrew. They'd read it in their Greek Bibles. B. It's the translation that's commonly quoted in the New Testament. So the New Testament quotes the Old Testament many times. And a lot of Bibles you can even tell because sometimes they'll put it in bold print or they'll put it in small caps or they'll tell you it's a quotation from the Old Testament, you know, in the New Testament. And or they'll have a footnote say back, this is Psalm 10 or Psalm 1. And when they're quoting the Old Testament, not all the time, but say the writer of the book of Hebrews, he almost exclusively quotes, he quotes the Septuagint. I say, what's the difference? Well, because when the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation, translated the Hebrew, uh, they didn't always translate exactly like the Hebrew text. Sometimes they were very free in their translation. Sometimes they changed a word here or there and so forth. They didn't exactly do it perfectly as we have the Hebrew text. And you can tell that in the quotation from the New Testament. It's, it's more like the Septuagint Greek than it is like the Hebrew. 
So it's it's widely quoted in a translation like the book of Hebrews. And that tells us, many people think, well, that means the writer of the book of Hebrews was someone who was very proficient in Greek and maybe a Gentile even because he doesn't quote the Hebrew text seemingly directly, he quotes the Septuagint. C, it's the basis for many of the theological terms in the New Testament. Compare the Greek word for sin, hamartia. So, here's the New Testament writers. They're going to write doctrine and theology. They're going to write about sin and righteousness and all kinds of theological terms. Where are they going to get their vocabulary from? Some of that is not in the Greek world or Greek pagan literature. They're getting it from the Old Testament. They're reading the Old Testament and they're taking their words from the Old Testament, from the Septuagint, how it's translated to Hebrew. So one word I mentioned is hamartia. If you've been a Christian for long, you've probably heard a sermon. I don't think I've heard Pastor Ken say it. But I've heard it many times, and it's, there's truth here. It is true. They'll say, you know, this word for sin, the word for sin, hamartia, it describes someone who's shooting at a target with a bow, an arrow, and they miss the mark. They don't get the bullseye. They miss the mark. And sin is missing the mark. Well, that's true. That's true. That's what, you know, in Greek, it mainly means to miss the mark. But it has no real moral connotation. If you aim your arrow at a target and you don't hit the bullseye, you haven't sinned. You don't have to go to confession next week. You know, you, you haven't sinned or anything. You made an error, but you didn't make do a moral wrong, did you? So hamartia doesn't quite have doesn't have the moral sense. So they took that word for missing the mark, and they they translate the Hebrew word for sin with that. So it does mean to miss the mark, but it's much more. It's a it's a it's a missing the mark with with God in mind. It's a theological misstep. It's a transgression of God's law. And so uh, the writers of the New Testament they got a lot of their vocabulary from that. Yeah, I got so talking. So I was so interested in my own talking here. I was just so interested in what I was saying. I forgot to show you a few slides here, so I'll make up for that by showing you a slide or two here. So, you know, we talked about the Septuagint there, and uh, there is a, uh, a portion of Leviticus from about 200, uh, written in Greek, a translation of Leviticus from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's the Dead Sea Scroll, part of a Dead Sea, no, part of a scroll, and it's a translation of Leviticus from about 200. So the Dead Sea Scrolls we talked about are mainly Hebrew scrolls. These were Jews there. They read Hebrew. But there are some Greek documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are some copies of the Septuagint in the Qumran Scrolls there. Now, I was showing you, I said the Greeks lived, uh, they lived all up. I mean, the Jews lived everywhere. See, there's major cities where the Jewish population was. So they lived in all kinds of different countries, and outside of, you know, Israel, all these places where they were at spoke Greek. Greek was the was the lingua franca. And so those people who lived out there in those places, those Jews, 
uh, a lot of them didn't know Hebrew. Now that causes a real problem in the early church in Acts chapter 6. Remember in Acts chapter 6 what the problem is? It says there that in the early church, remember there were people who came uh, into Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember that? And they were from all kinds of countries. Genesis uh, Acts 2 describes they came from all these different places and they spoke all these languages. And when they spoke in tongues, they heard them speak in all our different languages. You remember that? Acts 2. And so in the early church, in Acts chapter 6, you've got a problem because you've got these people who are from just Israel. They speak Hebrew. And they're widows. The early church took care of widows. It says the Grecian widows are being neglected. You know, they're being neglected. And the Jewish widows, the Hebrew widows, they're being taken care of. So these Jew, these Grecian widows are being neglected. So, And there's a conflict right there in the early church between kind of two divisions. Those Hebrews who were, those Jews who were from Israel, from right there, born right there, grew up right there, and those who came in from outside. Those who uh, were uh, immigrants, you know. So there was a hostility towards these immigrants who came in. And one was hostility was they didn't didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. So this caused some hostility right there. So uh, this, is, uh, this is what the situation was. And so I was saying that here's the Bible of the uh, early Christian church. So they had the, we have the original Old Testament, the original Greek New Testament. The Hebrew was translated, you know, into the Old Testament around beginning around 250 BC. So early Christians, their Bible would have been a Greek New Testament. They read their New Testament in the original Greek, and they read their Old Testament in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So we're talking about 8100. We're not talking about all Christians, but the majority, because the church quickly becomes a Gentile church. You know, spread throughout the empire like that. All right, so that's what I'm showing you on page uh, 15. There is the, the same chart there. So we finished talking a little bit now about the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What about the copies of the New Testament? Do we possess copies? Yes, we possess copies. And I say here, classification of manuscripts. There's about 5,916 catalog New Testament manuscripts. That word catalog is important. Many of these are only fragments. A good number are fragmentary. So 140 of these catalogs are catalog manuscripts are written on papyrus. They're called papyri. 323 are what called uncials. Uncials is a word that we think means like inch high. I'll show you what the letters look like. Uh, these uncials are written uh, on parchment. So the only thing written on papyrus is those 140. The uncials, 323, I'll explain what they are in a moment, are written on parchment. Minuscules, 2,956, and lectionaries. 
What are lectionaries? Lectionaries are selections of the Bible written out to be read in church. They still do that in some uh, mainline denominations. They have lectionaries and they'll say, on this Sunday we're going to read from this portion of the Old Testament and this portion of the New Testament. And they did that in the early church. They read from portions of Scripture and they would write that out. And so the person would get up and read. Reading was a big thing in the early church, reading the Bible. Why was that? Because until modern times, most average Christians did not have a copy of the Bible. It's expensive to copy the Bible. Some people may have made some copies, but a lot of people couldn't. Slaves and all that, they wouldn't have copies of the Bible. Who had a copy? Nobody could. That's expensive. So they heard the Bible read in church. And, and so they read... They were always reading in church certain sections of the Bible each week. And that's what these lectionaries are. Portions of the Bible. Something from the Gospels. Something from the uh, uh, from the, the Epistles. Two sections like that read sort of each week. I say number two, there's about 5,300 manuscripts known today. So I say catalog 5916. But how many do we actually possess... We can get our hands on today about 5,300. What's the discrepancy there? The reduced number is due to the fact that some manuscripts have been given two or more numbers. <laughs> How could that happen? <laughs> well, what happens is uh, some of these are just fragmentary. And somebody might find a page, you might find a half a page of the Gospel of John. And they say, okay, this is a New Testament manuscript, I'm going to give it a number. I'm going to give it number one. And a hundred years later, somebody comes and says, I found this portion of the Gospel of John. I'm going to give it a number. I'm going to give it number 150. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, these are really the same manuscript. They're, you know, they're separated. One's John chapter 8, one's chapter 15. But they're really the same scribe, same writer, same manuscript. We just didn't know that at the time. So they don't go back and change that. They just leave that. This is number one. This is number 150. But they'll, you know, in, in the literature, they'll say that these are really the same manuscript. So some of the numbers, sometimes there, there are two numbers assigned to the same manuscript. Uh, secondly, some have been lost, misplaced, or destroyed. How does that happen? Well, sometimes things get lost. A lot of these manuscripts came into museums. Uh, throughout Europe in the time of Western civilization, particularly in the late 1800s and 1900s when Europe was out there taking everything out of Egypt and other places, you know, bringing it back to the British Museum. Uh, sometimes this stuff just gets, just gets lost and uh, they, they, they cataloged it and then they can't find it. Sometimes they're taken to museums and wars come. World War II came and destroyed a lot of Germany. Things just got destroyed in German museums and other places like that. Uh, sometimes just we just can't find them. So we know there's, you know, we have about 5,300 you can lay your hands on, and some have some are, some are just not extant what they call now today. Let's talk about each one of these categories. First of all, number three, papyri. Papyri are written in uncial or majuscule script on papyrus. 
Now, I'm showing you here first what uncial script looks like. So, when we write Greek today, that is, you know, pastors, people who study in seminary or Bible college, when they write Greek, they write in a slightly different script than this is. Uh, some of the letters look similar, but some of the letters are different. Uh, these kind of letters are called uncial letters. They're, as I said, thought to be inch-high letters. This is a manuscript of the beginning of the book of Romans here. And notice how they there are no spaces between the words. Imagine that. <laughs> so I can only read this with quite a bit of difficulty, believe me. So this is a P. P-A-U-L-O-S. Paulos. So right here is a letter that looks like a C. But we write our S like this. So if I was writing Paulos today, I'd write... So it looks something like that, but we would write a sigma sort of like... Maybe we read it this, you know? But they wrote a, they wrote a, they wrote a sigma, a, a capital C like that. Like RC. Now the Romans later took that letter and put it in our alphabet. So this is Paulos, Paulos, and then Doulos, D-U-L-O-S, L-O-S. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now here we have abbreviations. You see those lines over those two letters? So this is the this is Christu. Yesu, Christ Jesus. And the, the line over there indicates this is an abbreviation. So they would abbreviate some words. Now these words are called nomina sacra, sacred names. They abbreviated names and also some religious terms, some religious things. But they would do that by Christ Jesus. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and then K-L-A-T-O-S. Platos. Called Apostolos. A-P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S. Called an apostle. So Paul and Apostolos. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. So this is how they read their Greek. And this is uncial script. This is a certain kind of script. And it's still very similar, but when you look at Paulos, now that's a capital gamma, so that's a gamma. If you've studied you know, something in math or something, you may have written a gamma like that. So, um, so it's, it's a, a slightly different script. And so if you look today at how a Greek New Testament looks, if you were to study Greek, and you were to look at a Greek writing in the Greek New Testament, you would see you would see down below. That's the script we use today. It's the same letters, just written with a different uh, kind of sign for each letter, a different form for each letter. Some of them are exactly the same, you know, but a lot of them are different. So I've just highlighted two: the hutos here, so you can see the difference, the tau is similar, the omega is similar, the sigma, the S, is that C. That's a capital gamma, that's the same as we have today, an alpha and a rho, an R. 
so this letter in Greek is an R, and uh, the Romans again took that letter and made it a P, and invented a new letter. Here's the Greek P. Now you call it Pi. You call it Pi, but that's a mispronunciation, but it's not really. It's Pi is 3.1416, you know, but that's the Greek letter P. So the Romans changed some of those letters. So that's the that's the way it looks in the Greek New Testament, but it's the same thing. Except there's no spaces there. And there's none of those little marks above. See those little marks above? Those are breathing marks and accent marks. There's none of that in the earliest manuscripts. As manuscripts come along, they get some of that stuff. So papyri are written in uncial. Uh, majuscule is another name for uncial. Major letters, large letters. Uncial's writing uses capital letters. The style was used for literary documents until the 9th century. 9th century A.D. So this is the way they wrote like this until the 9th century A.D. Until the 800s. Uncial letters are not connected to each other. Texts are written with no division between words. The powers manuscripts date from the 2nd to 8th century, though most come from the 3rd and 4th. The earliest papyrus is a fragment of John's Gospel that dates from approximately A.D. 125 to 150. P52. Now there it is. It's just a fragment of John 18, 31 through 33. This is thought to be the earliest part of the New Testament. The exact date is unclear. I've got 100 to 125. I forgot to revise my slide. I revised my notes here because they, some people are rethinking that. They think you can't say 100. It's probably more like 125. It's very. How, how do you know what the date of these things are? How could you tell? Well, you tell by the, the one way is the style of the handwriting. Now, sometimes manuscripts will actually have a date on it. They'll have a date. Or they'll have things in the margin that identify and say, okay, this is identifying some historical event, so it has to be after that event. So sometimes it's what's written in the in its margins, but sometimes the date is on it. On these early ones, it's mostly the style of handwriting. So they have studied handwriting over thousands of years. Because there's thousands of manuscripts, thousands and thousands, besides the New Testament. And some of them are are dated by various means, when they were written, who wrote them. And so they've developed kind of a way to look at a a style of writing and say, oh, this is early 2nd century, or this is late 3rd century. Now, it's not precise. It's not specific. It's just generally rough. And it's certainly not, you can't be dogmatic about the dates. But this is probably the earliest one. I changed it to 125 because I noticed a lot of scholars have kind of changed their mind P52 on this particular one. Now there was a big controversy uh, that happened a few years ago. I wrote a couple of blog articles about it because there was a debate some years ago, about four years ago, between a guy named Dan Wallace, a fellow named Dan Wallace, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, a New Testament scholar. He was in a debate uh, with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is one of the most well-known antagonists of Christianity that we know of. 
He's a person who grew up in Christianity and turned away from apostatize is the official term. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He went to Wheaton College. Went to Princeton. And then he just gave up on his Christianity. I mean, I don't know if he's... Would he say he's an atheist now? I guess he's... he's agnostic. Agnostic, I would think he would say now. Yeah, he uses both terms, agnostic he, and atheist. Atheist, yeah. But he doesn't believe in Christianity, obviously. He gave up on that. And uh, so Dan Wallace, they were debating about the reliability of the Bible. You know, can you trust the Bible and so forth? And, of course, Bart Ehrman was arguing. And Bart Ehrman is very famous because, uh, you know, the culture, the media love him. He's on PBS. He's written books. Whenever they want an expert on the Bible, they go to him and ask him, you know, what what's the truth about the Bible? And he doesn't even believe in the Bible, but, you know, he he knows a whole lot about it. He's an expert about the writing and so forth. So then in this debate, uh, this fellow Dan Wallace had gotten some information that a that a copy that is a fragment of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, from the first century. Now this is second century. So Mark was written in the first century. <laughs> we don't know exactly when Mark was written. Some say it was the first gospel written. Some say Matthew was written, but it was written in the first century. So maybe, you know. Late 50s, 50s, maybe 60, you know, sometime. And this this person told Dan Wallace and say, hey, listen, I've got this fragment that is a first century mark. And and so Wallace announces it in the debate that, that there's this first century mark out there. And everybody goes crazy. Now, maybe it's not exciting to you, but in the world of manuscripts and all this kind of stuff, people, man, they, they lit up the lit up the, the, the blogs. And we, now we have a blogosphere and we have internet. And so, man, everybody is, what is this? What's going on? And so uh, Wallace claimed that, that a, a world-renowned publisher named Brill was going to be publishing this, this, this manuscript, you know, the next year. They're going to be publishing this thing. And it would come out and we'd see it. And one of the world's leading paleontologists, what's a paleon, uh, papriologist, papriologist, a papriologist is a person who studies papyrus documents. And so one of the world's leading Christian papriologists, we know now he was talking about a person at Oxford University named Dirk Obing. Dirk Obing is actually an American. But he's really considered quite a genius. He won the MacArthur Prize. He had professorships in America, University of Michigan, professorships in Oxford. He's in Oxford, just a brilliant guy, you know. And we now know that he had heard this from Dirk Obey, Wallace had, that there's this first century mark out there. And I got it. And so we're all saying, oh, man, this is this is unbelievable, you know. And it's going to be published next year. Next year comes, it doesn't get published. Next year comes, it doesn't, it doesn't get published. It, doesn't, it just, what happened to this first century mark, you know. And other people got involved, particularly the Museum of the Bible. So the Museum of the Bible in Washington is funded by the Hobby Lobby people, you know. The Greens, uh, they made all this money selling crafts to my wife. Our, we have a room in our house that's just filled with drawers full of stuff 
that made Hobby Lobby rich. You know? I'm going to have a sale pretty soon in my house here. But, you know. And so they made all this money and they started this Museum of the Bible, which is really good, I think. You know, when I've heard, it's great. I'd like to go see it. But they were buying everything they could. And they bought some manuscripts from this Dirk Obing and all this. They bought various papyri. This Dirk Obing was the head guy of some papyrus that came out of Egypt in the late 1800s. In the late 1800s, 1898, a couple of British guys went down to Egypt and they discovered a treasure trove of manuscripts in a place called Oxyrhynchus, of all names. Oxyrhynchus. And they were digging around down there and they found thousands, buckets full of manuscripts. And they hauled them all back to Britain. And they've been publishing these in volumes for uh, 100, and 100 years now. And they still haven't published all of them. And uh, so this guy, Dirk Obing, is in charge of those. And he has, he has control of them. We now know now he illegally. Now, he denies this, but they actually have a bill of sales where he sold some of these to the Museum of the Bible. And uh, long, make a long story short, the truth is that this is, not, this is not a first century mark. We've seen the fragment now. We know it. It's not a first century mark. It's still a, it's still a very early copy, maybe second century, early third. It's, it's still a very early copy of Mark, just as fragment. But this guy's in a lot of trouble. I mean, he has made a lot of money. He's got a castle in Texas, and you know, he's <laughs> and but he was well respected, you know, really well respected. But we now know he appears to be a thief and all kinds of things like this. Appears he's denied it, but he sold. And so the the Museum of the Bible has had to give stuff back to the University of Oxford, stuff that they bought and paid money for, and other people have had to give stuff back that they bought from this Dirk Obink, you know. So so anyway, <laughs> that's the story of first century Mark as we know it now. So we don't uh, we don't have that, but we have this as the earliest manuscript. The University of Michigan has a lot of manuscripts. So back in the days when people were going to Egypt and they were taking this stuff, they took it to museums in Germany and they took it to England. They took a lot of manuscripts to University of Michigan. They have lots of. They have a whole papyrus collection. They have experts there, and they have one of the oldest portions of the Old Testament, P forty six. This is part of a papyrus called the Chester Beatty papyrus. Part of it's in Dublin, Ireland. Part of it's here, P forty six. So this is about two hundred. This is the end of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So Paul's epistle ends right here. And then it says, to the Hebrews right here. So in this manuscript, maybe I showed you that before, uh, Romans is followed by Hebrews, probably because the copiers thought that Hebrews was written by Paul. If you look at a larger sample of that, you can see this, I can see this, to the Hebrews. And uh, it starts off with the Hebrews. Here is a correction in the margin where somebody, the scribe, what we have in a lot of these manuscripts is somebody comes along either when they're copied or later on and makes a correction in the margin or something that they think this is the correct reading. This mark over here is the mark of a copyist who's indicating how many lines he's copied. He's apparently paid 
by the number of lines that he copies. Uh, here's another one, P66. This is around 200. This is John 1 1. Again, notice there's no spaces between the words or anything, and I can read this with just difficulty. I can see this in RK, in the beginning. Ain halagot was the word. I can, it's very hard because there's no spaces, there's no nothing, but it's written. It's not written in the script that I'm usually reading in my Bible, my Greek Bible. It's written in this uncial script, this more ancient script of Greek. Still Greek, the same thing. So the earliest is that uh, P52. So besides papyri, there are also, number on the next page, uncial manuscripts. Uncials are written in uncial script, but different from papyri in that they are written on parchment. So they're really the same. We say they're, we call them uncials, and we call the other papyri, but the only difference is the writing material. It's the same letters, they're just written, um, they're really the same, they're just uh, written on a different kind of material. They date from the 3rd to the 10th century. So what happened? We think, you know, earliest Christians used papyrus, and then they switched over to parchment. Parchment lasts longer, thousands of years even. There's a list of some of the important uncial manuscripts there. They're designated different ways by letters. That first letter is an aleph, a Hebrew letter, and then A, B, C, D, alpha, beta, gamma. And they are uh, have numbers, too. So here's Codex Sinaiticus, around A.D. 350. So it was once bound, like any other book, but the binding on the end is gone. You know, it's worn away, and there's what it looks like. Um, There's Codex Sinaiticus of John 1.1. So it's written in columns. That's four columns. It's usually three columns. Yes, I'm sorry. So uh, you mentioned that the... Uncials are they last longer, but they're all later copies. It's because this parchment was a later invention. Not a later invention, invented 200 BC, probably. So just as, but but more expensive. Gotcha. So parchment and papyrus were used at the same time, but papyrus was more readily available. Yeah. But the, but the papyrus is generally much more fragmented, whereas generally. This, Although obviously we have we have P forty six written in two hundred and here we are eighteen, but it, for normal use it would you know it would just crumble away, except in the dry sands of Egypt. So you don't find we haven't discovered any papyrus, you know, in Turkey, you know, generally. Uh, when you get down to Egypt, the dry sands it, it preserved that stuff. Parchment is much more uh, lasting, long lasting, obviously. So uh, there's. Codex Sinaiticus, that's uh, the first one on the first co- first row there. 01, complete, complete New Testament. It's located in London. If you go to the British, uh, the British, what is it called? British Library, I'm sorry, because I used to be, the Brit- it was all, they were all in the British Museum. And then the, then the museum said, we're going to create a special building for the manuscript. So if you go to the British 
museum, you have to walk a few blocks, and you go to the British Library, and there they'll have the manuscripts on display. So you can see that on display there in Codex Alexandrinus. Here's Codex Vaticanus. It's found in the Vatican today, so that's how it gets its name. It wasn't there was no Vatican in 325 when it was probably written. And that's the one I showed you the close-up of a while ago. It's got some illumination, as you can see on the left there, even in that early stages. This was an expensively done manuscript, and it's the same one I just showed you of that. I was trying to show you that Uncial script. So papyrus is written in Uncial script. Uncials are written in Uncial script. But they have different names only because of the writing material. The uh, papyrus are written on papyri. And then we have minuscules are written in minuscule script on parchment at the beginning of the 9th century and after the 12th century on paper. Minuscule writing is a cursive style that was developed for literary documents. Cursive writing was in, ex- uh, was in existence when uncial writing was being used, but not until the 9th century was it used for New Testament manuscripts. So there's an example of minuscule writing. Now, what I just said was that in Paul's day, all the manuscripts we have from Paul's day are in that uncial capital letter script we saw. Everything, uncial capital letter. But they had, they had a cursive script. So we don't know when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, did he write in uncial letters or did he write in a cursive script? We don't know how he wrote that cursive script is not called minuscule. Minuscule is a technical name later on developed So for literary documents. So at first, it was thought that literary documents should be written like in all capital letters, you know, or something. They should be written in capital letters. But then there was a literary cursive. And so that's a, that's a cursive script. And it has, it, it gets more elaborate as you go along. And it's, you know, I can't even read the stuff because... It's got what we call ligatures, abbreviations, letters crammed together. So here's one from John 13. And it's just got all kinds of letters crammed together here. And it's very difficult to read if you haven't read this minuscule handwriting before. So it's, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to see what's going on. Then lectionaries, we talked about that, remember, are manuscripts in which the scriptures are written not in ordinary sequence, but in sections arranged in units for reading in church services. These are written on parchment, later paper, beginning in the 6th century and continuing through the age of printing. So here's an example of one where it's just a copy, sections of the scripture copied out, usually a section from the Gospels and a section from the Apostles, Apostolic Writings, you read each one each week. You read section each week. What about the reliability of New Testament documents? How reliable are the the, 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 the translations we have? We'll talk more about that, but I'll say one, the manuscripts we possess in the New Testament are much greater in number than manuscripts of ancient classical works. For instance, one of the most read works over the centuries is Julius Caesar's Commentaries on the Gallic Wars, written in 53 B.C. Now, if you were in high school in 1930, 1900, 
1920. Or, and I just said to you, all of Gaul is divided into three parts. Everybody in the class would know that that is from Caesar's commentary on the Gallic Wars. It was just, <laughs> everybody knew that. Now, nobody studies Latin anymore, and nobody studies these kind of works anymore, but everybody everybody in my class in high school would know when I said all of Gaul is divided in three parts. They'd know that's the opening lines. What is that line uh, that a man possessed of a good fortune must be in need of a wife? Right? Anybody know what that's from? Uh, Jane Austen, Pride and, Pride. Pride, Pride and Prejudice. I thought more of these ladies would know that. What's wrong? So, you know, it's a famous line. So these famous lines from opening books. So this Caesar's Comedy of the Gallic Wars is what every student in high school, in my high school, studied. Uh, so what I'm saying here is we only have 250 manuscripts. That's a lot, but it's not like the New Testament. And that was a widely read book, widely known book. Caesar, this is Julius Caesar. He became famous by going to Gaul, France, Germany, and conquering all these tribes and all this. This made him rich and famous and so forth. So everybody was familiar with it. So what I'm saying is we read that in high school, and people read it down through the years. Uh, the first schools in America were, the first really good schools were Latin schools, like the Boston Latin School. I've heard of that school, but people went there from the 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s. You know, all the all the founders went to the, you know, in, in uh, New England went to the Boston Latin School. So they all learned this, and they read Caesar, and they thought they were reading Caesar. They didn't say, hey, are we, got, are we reading Caesar here? Even though there was only 250 manuscripts known, they still we were able to compile those manuscripts and have a copy of Caesar's commentary on the Gallic Wars and have faith that we're reading Caesar, what Caesar wrote. We have many more copies of the New Testament, and that gives us even more confidence. Two, the manuscripts we possess in the New Testament are much closer to the date of the originals than the manuscripts of the ancient classic works. Caesar's Gallic War, on the other hand, is found and manuscripts from the 9th century, and most are from the 15th century. So they're later on, even though we don't have... Caesar wrote this, remember, in 53 B.C. We don't have anything in the 1st century, the 2nd century, 3rd century. There's a big gap there, which we don't experience in the New Testament. So we have manuscripts closer to the originals and much uh, more. Well, number. Let's look at one last thing. We'll stop here. Thirteen. What is the Vulgate? Yes. So we don't have, to your knowledge, we don't have any of the original original manuscripts. We only have copies. Well, we know we don't have the originals of the. Yeah. We don't have any of the originals. So, and the reason why they would be reliable, or why we would consider them reliable, is that. We have multiple copies of each. We can piece the whole thing together multiple times over right. to say, okay, well, this one from way over here and this one from way over here says the same thing. Right. Or, or reasonably close right. to the same thing. Right. So we have that. We have writings of the church fathers, uh, you know, that talk about these right. and quote these and so forth. 
What is the Vulgate? Uh, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament were gradually translated into a number of ancient languages. Probably the earliest language which the New Testament was translated was Latin, beginning in the second century. This earliest translation is called the Old Latin. So, we said the New Testament was written in Roman times. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire, but not the not the spoken language. Greek was spoken throughout the empire, mostly. But the official language was Latin. And so very early on, the New Testament was translated into Latin. This is called the Old Latin. B, Vulgate. What does Vulgate mean? It means common or popular. So the Vulgate translation is the common or popular Latin translation. Number one, about 8300, Greek was no longer being spoken in Western Europe. Latin became dominant, and this produced the need for official Latin translation of the Bible. So when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, he wrote to the capital of Rome. But he didn't write in Latin. He didn't need to. <laughs> he wrote in Greek because people in the capital of Rome, the Roman Empire, where Romans, Latin is the official language, most people spoke Greek. So he could write in Greek. But that changed, as you can see by this chart here. Eventually, Latin became to dominate. And so eventually, Latin dominated Western Europe, North Africa, and just Greek was eventually spoken in Greece and then, you know, in Asia Minor there and so forth like that. So there became a need for a official Latin translation about A.D. 300. Around 400, this translation number two was produced by a biblical scholar named Jerome at the insistence of the Bishop of Rome in 405. Jerome translated the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. Under pressure, he included some of the apocryphal books, though he himself did not believe they were canonical. Remember we talked about the apocrypha? Remember that? Those books that the Roman Catholic Church eventually added in the 16th century to the Bible. He translated some of them into Latin, though he didn't think they were really in the canon, but he, he did. And so eventually, over time, as the Vulgate was copied and copied and copied and copied over thousands of years, a lot of these apocryphal books became part of the Latin translations. The Vulgate, number four, became the Bible of the church for the next 1,000 years and had a profound influence on modern translations made prior to the 19th century. So here's how what happened later on. Eventually in Western Europe, the Latin Vulgate became the Bible. Latin, Greek was no longer spoken. People in Rome couldn't read the Greek New Testament. People in France, or you know what we think of France, or Germany, or England, only, the only thing people could read, the only thing that was written, was written in Latin. Latin was the universal language of education. It was all Latin. So... Number four, the Vulgate became the Bible of the church for the next one and had a profound influence on these modern translations. Here's a Latin Vulgate manuscript from 1273, written by hand. Nice handwriting, huh? Written by hand. A handwritten manuscript. I say here, the chapter divisions in our modern Bibles were invented by Stephen Langdon for the Vulgate. So we have chapter divisions in our Bible. Where'd they come from? They were invented for the Latin Vulgate translation in the 13th century. The first printed Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, was the Vulgate. When the printing press was invented, 
the first book to come off the printing press in 1554, 1454, was the Bible. It wasn't the Greek Bible. It wasn't the Hebrew Bible. It was the Latin Bible because that was what Christians had nothing to do with Jews. Here's a Matthew from the Gutenberg Bible. Finally, let me just say one thing. Uh, number five, the Vulgate was revised in 1592 under the authority of Pope Clement VIII. 1965, Paul VI authorized the revision of the Clementine Vulgate. This Nova Vulgata Vulgata was uh, finished in 1979, the second edition in 1986. This edition is the authorized version of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church officially still uses this Latin translation that goes back to 400. They've revised it over time called the Vulgate. All right, sorry to keep you so long. <laughs> next time, Lord willing, we'll pick up. Uh, and it's on page, that next page 18, you have that chart. I just got it on the wrong, get it on the right page there. Thank you so much.